When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey guys, it's Jill. Jen and I wanted to give you a heads up about the content on today's episode. It may be triggering for more sensitive audiences. Refer to the show notes for more specifics. And take care while you listen. On this episode of Common Mystics, we solve a cold case, the murder of a young woman in 1934 in a working class town just outside of Atlantic City. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story takes us to Pleasantville, New Jersey. That's right, Jennifer. Let's talk about our intention that day in the car as we were driving around South Jersey. We asked the spirits to guide us to a verifiable story previously unknown to us that would allow us to give voice to the voiceless. And we found one. Let's talk about our hits that led us there. First of all, driving around Pleasantville, I remember seeing the name of the town and thinking, that's ironic. Yeah. Unpleasant things happened here. A hundred percent. What about you? Well, we were driving through South Jersey and we just left Atlantic City and we pull through, like you said, Pleasantville. And I noticed right away, it felt ethnic. It felt like an ethnic neighborhood being from Chicago, we see a lot of that. Like we have Greek town, we have Chinatown. Exactly. That's how it felt. It felt like a nice little ethnic neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I did something in Pleasantville that I've never done before. What? When we were driving on Main Street, I noted the address and I wrote it down. Interesting. Mm -hmm. While we were driving through the town, it felt like the people that worked, like the blue collar people that worked in Atlantic City lived there, like the help lived there. Mm -hmm. Also, as we were driving through Pleasantville towards a town called Northfield, New Jersey, we were noticing that the houses were changing. They were getting bigger. And I remember us talking once again about that feeling of people in power, people with privilege, people with money and those without. So again, that idea of uh, a case that had the haves and the have-nots. That that wealth discrepancy. Mm -hmm, exactly. You know, weird. We ended up at a cemetery and the one of the graves at the cemetery had our sister's like exact name on it. That was really like a smack in the face. And it felt like we were going to find a story to give voice to someone that would be someone's sister. Yes, I agree. So tell me about Pleasantville, New Jersey. 
Pleasantville, New Jersey is located in Atlantic County, New Jersey. It is on the South Jersey coast. It's a little working class town. It's just about five minutes across the marsh from Atlantic City itself. And the economic fortunes of those living in Pleasantville, New Jersey would be directly tied to what was happening in Atlantic City at the time. That totally makes sense. So, like, as Atlantic City was developing, the people who were developing Atlantic City needed a place to stay. Mm -hmm. And as the money was coming in and they were expanding in Atlantic City, the money was coming in for those expanding Atlantic City and making it work. So that totally makes sense. Right. And also the people who were living in a place like Pleasantville would have been the actual workers who would be commuting to Atlantic City every day in the building and maintaining of all of the... The industry there. You took the lead on our research. I did. Tell me what you found. Let's get right into it. I felt really compelled to keep digging for a woman, for a woman who was murdered. And Jill, I think I found her. I think I found who has been like screaming out to me in my mind since we left Jersey for real. Tell me all about her and the unfortunate circumstances that led to her death and what you know about them. Our story takes us to 1934. Her name was Gaetana Cardile. She was known as Anna. She was 19 years old. On the night of Wednesday, October 3rd, 1934, Anna left her family home located on Main Street in Pleasantville, and she left by slipping out around 8 p.m. without telling her family where she was going or what she was doing. Okay, so far sounds like a regular teen to me. Okay. Right, regular 19-year-old going out in the town. Mm-hmm. Witnesses reported that she got into an automobile, a sedan, in other words, a four-door car, on Main Street right in front of a local restaurant. And in the car were two men and another woman. And that that car was headed towards Northfield. But witnesses could not identify the plates. That's where we were headed. Exactly. We were on Main Street headed towards Northfield. So everything about this seems legit. I do not see anything bad happening. Okay. Tell me what else is going on. There are more witnesses who would tell police that they did see Anna talking to a man that looked to be middle age, who had a, quote, powerful and stocky build. Okay, that is a little unnerving. And those were the last sightings of Anna because she never returned home. Oh, that, okay, okay, I did not see that coming. So what happened? Well, the following day on October 4th, 1934, her brother called the police and reported her missing. Oh, God, they must have been out of their minds. Several days later, a body of a young woman was found buried in a sandy, shallow grave just west of Atlantic City by two young teenage boys who had been playing in the bull rushes. That is a horrible day for for everyone involved. For real. Especially those boys. Oh, my goodness. And mm, that's not good. And the body sadly, was confirmed by her family to be that of Ms. Anna Cardiel. Nowadays, Jen, when investigators are looking at a crime of murder, they look at something called the victimology. Like what in this person's Mm -hmm. life 
could have exposed them at a greater risk to being a victim of homicide. Mm. Can we look at Anna's victimology to give us clues as to who could have done this crime and who had access to Anna? Anna worked at the local Five and Dime. She was a sales clerk. Mm. She would be working with the public. And also, she would be working with different vendors and merchants as well. So in that regard, she was 19 years old, fun, pretty, liked to go out, and was very accessible to the public. Yeah. And people would have recognized her. That's probably why there were so many sightings of her that night, because it's like, Anna, oh, we, I saw Anna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was at the restaurant, or I saw Anna. She was talking to some right. dude. Okay, that makes sense. So there, so she was well-known. Mm-hmm. What else do we know about her victimology that may indicate or shed some light on to why she was heinously murdered? Once she was discovered, the police questioned just about everybody in Anna's life. And many of them mentioned that Anna was dating uh, a couple of guys pretty recently, Well, I don't see anything wrong with that. She had been seeing a man named John Sutton, who lived in Linwood, not too far from Pleasantville. Okay. So he was one of the two recent, quote unquote, boyfriends. Got it. Who is another? Another one was a man named George Scholes, who was from a Pleasantville family, but was currently in the army and stationed in Fort Wadsworth in New York. If he wasn't in town, how did we know that they had some kind of relationship? Great question. When the investigators searched Anna's room in her house on Main Street, they found 15 letters in Anna's bedroom written by George Scholes to Anna. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. And those letters were written between June and September. Now, remember, she was murdered in October. Mm. And the letters found suggested that the two were on, quote unquote, intimate terms by the tone and the content of those letters. Is there anything in the letters that stuck out to you as troubling or notable? Oh, yes. To me and to police at the time. Something you would want to share In three of those letters, three of the 15 written by George Scholes, the soldier, to Anna, he warns her not to let, quote, her people know about, quote, her condition, unquote. What was he referring to when he referred to her condition? Was she like club foot? Like what what was Did she have the gout? No, she was not (laughs) club foot and she didn't have the gout. Her condition was that she was pregnant. She was about four months pregnant. In fact, the remains of her baby were found along with Anna's remains in that shallow, sandy grave. That's terribly sad. Terribly sad. It seems like George wasn't excited about Anna's pregnancy. We don't know that. We just know that he was warning her not to tell people about it. Well, maybe maybe they wanted to do a whole shower thing for her. Maybe a big reveal, like with the blue or the pink. Exactly. Yeah, balloons. We don't know what he was thinking. We don't know. Maybe it was one of those cakes that's like white on the... And then you have to like cut open the cake and then the color of the cake tells you. Those are so fun. Is there a cake we don't like? Is there a cake we don't like? Because I'm pretty sure like... That's a good point. It's a cake. That's a good point. (laughs) 
I like cake. Can <laughs> we just end it there? Reason enough <laughs> to celebrate. Okay, tell me a little bit about her family because we got her her dating situation. We got her work situation. Tell me about her family life. What do we know about her family? Anna Cardiel lived with her parents, Santo and Dominica. They were Italian immigrants naturalized as Americans sometime before the year 1920. They had nine children, including Anna. So many children. That's a lot of children. God bless you, Dominica. (laughs) Is she tired? Probably. Santo supported his family by doing concrete work and iron work, presumably in Atlantic City that was just a few minutes away. And according to the 1930 census, his whole family of 11, which would be the parents and the nine children, lived at his Main Street home along with his daughter's husband, William. I would sneak out of that house, too. No kidding. Yeah. Like, I'd be like, I'm out, yo. That's 12 people living in that house. That's a lot. I mean, they're right on top of each other. They must have been close-knit. Either close-knit or, like, fighting that's, like cats and dogs, right? Either <laughs> There's no in-between. Either they were fighting a lot or they were spending a lot of quality <laughs> time together. Sometimes both. Did she have friends in the neighborhood to speak of? Were any of her friends interviewed? She did have friends, mm. and one of her best friends was... Was interviewed. Her name was Dorothy Pizzichetti, and she lived near Anna. She told police that Anna had recently broken up with her boyfriend about two months before mm. the murder. But Dorothy either wouldn't or couldn't tell police who that boyfriend was. It's interesting because if we look back on the information we have so far regarding her boyfriends, there are two, two right? There mm-hmm. was one, John Sutton, who said that he hadn't been hanging around with her for a couple months now. And then the other one who was writing her letters all the way up t- through September. Right. Okay. Interesting, mm-hmm. Dorothy. I seem to recall the newspaper saying that one of her friends had divulged that Anna was like a woman that meant like that like flirted and was like out with many guys, which I think like if if I die, so if, like if you find me dead and I'm serious about this, don't make me into a saint. You know what I mean? But don't turn me into a slut either. Like, you know, like, can't we just be like she was a good kid? Like, why are we like being like she was a total whore? Like, can't we just be like she's like, honestly, she wasn't doing anything unusual by dating a couple of different guys. For real. She was 19 years old. No. No, not at all. That doesn't make her a slut. And you know what? Some 19-year-olds, especially in the 1930s, accidentally get pregnant. Anyway. Anyway. Autopsy. Let's talk about it. I'm assuming someone did an autopsy. They did do an autopsy. And I will tell you, newspapers from the 1930s are messed up. They have all kinds of errors. They print all kinds of discrepancies. So it's really annoying. But what I could put together was that the medical examiner (laughs) said that she was struck on the head in the back on the right, but the blow wasn't hard enough to kill her. It rendered her unconscious, but did not kill her. Cause of death was that she bled out as a result of being buried alive in that shallow grave. Describe, was there blood splatters at the scene? Like, what did that look like? What was the physical evidence? Well, based on the physical evidence, she was hit on the head in another location. And the police's 
theory was that she was in a car that was pulled up to the road, that she was beaten on the head in the car and then dragged about 100 feet off the road to this sandy area and hastily buried in the sand. And so the police were saying there's evidence that yes. there was a car, yes. there was a dragging and there's yes, the pools, pools of, of blood. blood. Yes, where she was it, left. Okay. So who were the investigators of this crime? Who's going to bring this murder to justice, Jennifer? Okay. Well, the chief of police at the time was Samuel Naylor, Chief Naylor. We're going to be talking about him quite a lot. He was the chief of police in Pleasantville, New Jersey. He was 54 years old at the time. Okay. He had been a policeman since 1913. So he, this man has 20 years under his belt. That's who I want investigating my murder. Exactly. He also worked his way up. He started as a patrolman, then worked his way up to sergeant, then captain, then chief of police. I'm liking this guy. He appears to be a hardworking man who went through the ranks. No nonsense, kind of crotchety old investigator that's going to bring me some justice. I like it. Who else is helping the chief out? The other player is Robert McAllister. And McAllister was the prosecutor in Atlantic County, New Jersey at the time of the murder. Okay. He was 35 years old. That's awfully Ooh, young, isn't it? That's a little young. I, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. He was also a World War I vet. Got it. Right. So those two are the primary investigators of this crime, Chief Naylor and Prosecutor McAllister. Okay, suspects. Let's go through them. I have a number one suspect on my list. Who's yours? It would be George Scholes. He is the number That's one suspect. That's what mine is. Well, there were all those letters <laughs> that led us to Scholes, right? All those letters. So we already know a little bit about him. Uh, and him being like Ixnay on AB Bay. Exactly. Like, that's that's uh, kind of red flaggy to me. Tell me about him. What do we know? Okay. So George Scholes Jr. was about 20 years old at the time of Anna's murder. His parents lived on Franklin Boulevard in Pleasantville. He uh, was living at an army base at Fort Wadsworth in New York, Staten Island at the time of Anna's murder. How far is that away from Pleasantville and where Anna was murdered? Um, his base was about 119 miles away from Pleasantville. So it's drivable. So it's, yeah. And I did the research on like how long it would take in 1930 to like make that drive. And really like automobiles at the time were going for 50 to 60 miles an hour. So, you know, a couple hours, three hours, making a couple stops if you're driving at your leisure. Sure. Now, the papers did refer to George Scholl's family as, quote unquote, prominent he came mm. from a prominent Pleasantville family. He had lived in Pleasantville and knew Anna before he enlisted in the Army in January of 1933. A lot of people would have known Anna. She's working at the Five and Dime. Right. Uh, George was identified by people who knew Anna as Anna's former boyfriend. He was? That's, he was identified to be short. Yes. Shut up. I thought it was just the letters, but other people were like, no, he been with her. No, she was seen with him. Wow. Yep. Okay, go on. Police noted that George Scholes had been keeping company, quote unquote, keeping company. You know, all of these old time newspapers, they write in code about illicit things. I know. It's super, super annoying because to me, I'm like, they kept yeah. company. No, no, no. <laughs> like they they were keeping out. company with Anna prior to her murder. And not only that, but George was seen in Pleasantville on the actual day 
that Anna went missing, October 3rd, 1934. So this is, this case is closed. Thank you very much. What do you mean it's closed? (laughs) I mean, what more do we need? Letters, baby Hayden, don't tell people of your condition. I'm in town. So the end. He was seen in Pleasantville on October 3rd with a woman that he was, quote unquote, keeping company with from New York. The man keeps a lot of company. He does keep a lot of company. And he was with a New York girl. And he was seen near Anna's house with the New York girl on the night of her disappearance. How do you like that? I am like, hate the game, not the player. I don't know. It seems, why would he bring another girl to his girlfriend's house? But whatever. Seems weird. He arrived in Pleasantville with the girl from New York. And he stopped Mm -hmm. at George's friend's house. Um, His friend's name was Charles Garton. Now, you said you said that he was seen by Anna's house. Did his friend Charles live near Anna's house? His friend Charles did live near Anna's house. He also lived on Main Street in Pleasantville. Okay. Okay. Now, Charles Garton friend of George's, was questioned by police Mm -hmm. after Anna's murder. And Charles said that George and the New York girl visited his house on Wednesday, October 3rd, around 6 p.m. And they were driving a sedan and they asked him to get another girl so that they could all four of them go on a double date later that night. Shut your mouth. That was his statement. Did he go? Did he get the girl? According to him, he didn't go. He said he declined. He wasn't up for it. Okay. 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 So there was that information from Charles Garten. Okay. So again, this case is over to me. I I mean, I feel like I found the dude. He had, he had motive. He was in the area. He had the means, access. Why are we talking? Prosecutor McAllister, remember the 35-year-old whippersnapper? Gotcha. He talked to George. He talked to George's New York girlfriend. He talked to Charles Garton. He talked to George Sr. and decided that, no, George Scholes had nothing to do with this murder. Um, What gave him that idea? Because I got to tell you, McAllister, this seems pretty textbook to me. Well, George's dad, George Scholes Sr., told the police that his son had nothing to do with the murder and he was sure about it. Well, no shit. He's, I know. No shit. You know what? If someone came to my house questioning me about the dead bird that Sonny dragged home, I would be like, no, that bird died and we brought it in out of respect. Not my son. Not like, no, my son would never do anything like that. His father said that the last time he knew that Anna and his son George got together was back in Labor Day because they went to Atlantic City for the day the, on the Sunday before Labor Day. And that was the last time the two of them were together, according to George's dad. Well, George's dad knows a lot about what George is doing in his spare time. It's a little weird. Did you get that detailed with mom? Like, Dennis and I are going to go to Baker Square <laughs> on Labor Day. We will hold hands and the company. Not only that, according to George Sr., George was driving the New York girl's coupe. He said he wasn't driving a sedan. He was driving the girl's coupe, which is an interesting detail for him to bring up when witnesses placed George in a sedan with the girl. That is very weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, the papers did note, though, that the Scholl family, they had two or three different automobiles. Police wouldn't comment if one of those automobiles might have been the sedan uh, George was seen in. I mean, it's a small town. I would just walk over and be like, they had a sedan. 
But here's right? here's the biggest piece of evidence that I think McAllister was leaning on, if you ask me. Tell me what you think of this. Apparently, George Jr. got home the following night after visiting his family in Pleasantville on October 3rd, which happened to be the night that Anna went missing. And when he got home, he wrote Mm -hmm. a detailed letter to his parents describing his exact, his exact movements from Pleasantville until the following day. And he described how he and the New York girl visited another camp Camp Dix on their way back to New York and they stopped there <laughs> and and then they stopped at at the New York girl's house in the Bronx at 8 p.m. before finally arriving at Fort Wadsworth around 3 a.m. on October 4th. So yeah, there was a very convenient letter that he stopped and and wrote to his parents. Okay, first of all, you said Fort Dix and uh, or Camp Dix. I did D I X Jill, D I X. Um, Okay, he arrived home at 3 a.m.? According to his letter, yeah. On Thursday the 4th? So he was, like, driving all night. Oh, I'm so confused. Not only was he driving all night going with with New York girl to all these different camps and forts and stuff, but then he, like, came home and wrote a letter about it to his parents? Like, what are you saying? I know, that's super weird, right? How super convenient for him to be like, and this is my alibi, without saying this is my alibi. Well, especially because he just left his parents' house on the 3rd, right? Like, why are you writing them a letter on the 4th being like, I just got home. I just saw you a couple hours ago. Since that time, (laughs) I went to the bathroom twice. I had an apple. Me and New York girl went here and here and here. Like, why would you do that? It makes no sense. The thing is, Jen, although this man did write his parents a lovely little letter about his detailed whereabouts for the past 12 hours on October 4th, there was also other letters that were found, according to the investigation. There were shredded letters that George had in his possession at Fort Wadsworth. Can you tell me about those letters? Because I feel like that may be more credible evidence. When this murder came out, they questioned George. The police were there. He was under guard in his barracks. They searched his room. They did. And they found shredded letters that were stuffed into his baggage. Now, police at the time, and it was written in the papers, that they believed he that those letters had something to do with Anna's disappearance and murder. And so they took those shredded letters that were stuffed in a bag and they put them back together. I imagine like tape, you Mm -hmm. know, that would have been a painstaking process Mm -hmm. and read the letters Mm -hmm. afterwards. McAllister would say later that those letters had nothing to do at all with uh, Anna. This is my thing. If you're shredding something, if you're shredding anything at any time, it's usually because some of that information could be used negatively against you, whether it be someone getting your social security number or your address or your blue cross blue shield number. Do you know what I mean? Like, why would you shred it's definitely suspicious that he shredded up letters and kept them. Why do and you then think he kept them kept in a bag? Right. Well, if it if they were in a bag, he was probably going to move them out of his room at some point and dump them somewhere else. Agreed. Or he was shredding them, and someone walked in and he just shoved them in his bag. 
True. Okay. Anyway, we'll never know. We'll never know. But McAllister did say, oh, yes, those letters had nothing to do with Anna Cardiel. But it wasn't only McAllister. That's what I was going to ask you. Tell me about the amazing sheriff that we had. The chief of police? Yeah. Nailer, the sher- the chief of police, he must have been suspicious. Well, you and I are suspicious looking at this evidence that was printed in the paper. But Chief Naylor, he was in agreement with McAllister and determined that George Scholes was of excellent character. That is a quote. He was of excellent character and, again, had nothing to do with Anna's disappearance and murder. And that makes me so uncomfortable because and usually when you clear someone of a of a crime, it's because like their alibi checks out or there's evidence to suggest otherwise or something. Not that, well, he has an excellent character. Like that doesn't mean anything to me. Right. Well, McAllister did say that his alibi was airtight and that it checked out. My problem is that the information in the alibi is contradictory to what his friend Charles Garton said he was doing that night. And also based on a letter that he wrote his parents himself like he wrote right yeah anyway moving on yeah so now that we decided we're just not going to prosecute this guy we're absolving him he's he's not gonna be he's an excellent kid yeah excellent kid from a prominent family he's not gonna be the murderer we need to find other murder suspects that's right if we're gonna solve this case give me number two murder suspect what do you got (sighs) it's pretty weak jill Remember how some witnesses saw Anna talking to a stockily built, powerful, middle-aged man? Mm-hmm. He sounds hot, by the way. <laughs> I like I a mean, stocky. Not my type, but whatever. They look into this fish merchant who kind of fit that <laughs> description. And this fish merchant went to Philadelphia for a, a couple days. And um, his name was Amer Gosner. And so they they follow him to Philadelphia and they question him, but he turns out to be legit, right, Jill? I did do extensive research on <laughs> Gosner. The, the fish merchant. On the fish merchant. The poor turns out he's stocky powerful. Fish <laughs> no I'm kidding. He is from Philadelphia. He was born yeah. there. He did go back to Philadelphia for fish reasons. <laughs> and I I mean, there, it's pretty open and shut. I don't know. I don't Nothing know. Nothing fishy there. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they would. They were just looking for any stocky middle aged man at that point. Like how ridiculous they're following a fishmonger to Philly. And this one probably knew her from the store. You know what I mean? It was like, ah, there's a connection. It's like, okay, that's weak. I think the point is, is that McAllister is creating a bunch of different theories to compensate for not charging or looking at George in a serious way. So he's pulling things out of his hat. And then they moved on to their third suspect. Well, John Sutton, he was one of the boyfriends that was identified as having had a relationship with Anna in the months before she she died. Remember? Right. And good police work would have questioned him and and looked at him closely. Right. Right. You would imagine that he would be questioned for sure. Right. He was about 17 or 18 years old at the time of Anna's murder. Mm -hmm. And he was the son of a widowed mother. He worked on the family farm in Linwood, New Jersey, just really close to, to Pleasantville. And he did date Anna for some time, but he hadn't been in her company for a few months before the murder. So 
I did research on him and like his life after the fact just to see if like anything like any criminality turned up. And to tell you the truth, John Benjamin Sutton is a really good guy. He respects women. Yeah, I really like him. So absolutely not him. They didn't pursue anything in conjunction with him. He was absolved of any involvement. So at this point, the case goes cold. That's right. It's the end of 1934. The case goes cold. McAllister is looking to leave his position as the chief prosecutor of the county. And so he supports a new chief prosecutor. It's a young man named Altman. Yeah, Joseph Altman. Yep. Now, as part of this new assignment, this new elected official was like, I am going to go over all the un the open unsolved crimes and murders around the city. There were said to be seven of them, but apparently Altman got it down to just two. And one of the two is the car is Anna Cardiel's murder, right? So as the efforts of opening up the case go underway, the press of the Atlantic City in 1935 report that there was an Alex Bolden and an officer Albert Klein of Atlantic City. And they were digging up where the crime scene was. And they had these big screens. They were sifting through the sand looking for any other evidence that they could find because, Jennifer, the police received an anonymous letter stating that the murders girl's pocketbook had never been found and it contained a clue to what happened to her. Now, Jennifer, give me all the information about this crazy letter. This is wacky. Tell me. This quote-unquote letter was written on a torn piece of brown wrapping paper. It was put in a cheap envelope and it was postmarked from Pleasantville, New Jersey. And it was mailed to the chief of police, Chief Naylor. It was not only written on a torn piece of wrapping paper, but it was written in two different handwritings. One handwriting was described as, quote unquote, heavy and masculine. And another hand was, quote unquote, lighter and more feminine. It's so simplistic. Like a woman couldn't have a fat, heavy hand. Whatever. Is your is your hand fat and heavy? Sometimes I swell. <laughs> well, let me tell you what this letter said. Tell me. OK, this is a quote from the newspaper. On October 3rd, there was a party of four. All got drunk. One tried to attack the car deal girl. She hit him on the head. He jumped up and choked her. She died. We buried her in the morning. Look well and you will find her pocketbook near where you found her. So you imagine there's probably more in this letter than what was released to the press. Mm-hmm. The, the police did not find a pocketbook. Again, this letter came to the police, arrived to the police in January of 1935, which was like three months after Anna was murdered. Well, Jennifer, have no fear because, you know, that that sand shift in officer Alex Bolin. Yes. He is going on vacation to Miami. Oh, how nice for him. I know. He's enjoying the sun, hanging out. And while he's down there, he just happened to bump into someone who knew this girl, Angela. What? And Angela. Angelina. Angelina. Call her Ange. We're very close. Okay. But Angelina is Dorothy's 
sister. Now, oh. Dorothy is Dorothy's a good friend. Yeah, you yes. remember Dorothy. She's a good friend of Anna's. Of course. Now, Officer Alex was talking to this guy that knows Angelina, and he said that Angelina was with Anna and two people the night before Anna's ultimate disappearance and death. So he gave Officer Alex the name of the actual slayer and Anna's killing. And so it's been reported to the newspaper on January 19th, there is going to be an inevitable arrest in the case solving Anna's murder. Finally, I am so ready. I am so ready? ready for someone to be arrested, tried and convicted of this terrible murder. So who did Officer Alex Bolin finally arrest? Well, no one. As it turns out, <laughs> for months, no one was arrested and okay. nothing was in the newspaper. Then on on July 17th, okay, three people were arrested. All right. Better late than never. In connection to Anna's death. The three people were identified as Papa Santo Cardiel, his wife, Dominica Cardell, and their son, Joseph. Uh, um, are you saying that police arrested Anna's parents and her brother? Yes. For her murder? Yes. Well, I would say this. Now, Mama, Mama was let go pretty soon, but father and son were kept in jail and... They brought him in saying, you're witnesses. We need to ask you a couple questions. And then when they didn't let them go, then they charged them with obstruction of justice to keep them in jail. Wow. And actually, there was a pretty high bail for both men and friends and family would end up contributing to the bail to get them both released from jail. That's exactly right. So this is all like legit, like some fuckery, right? Like this is not police work. Did this go anywhere? Were they ever brought in again? Did anything come of this line of questioning? Nothing came out of it. Nothing came out of this at all. Not from Officer Alex down in Miami. His tip didn't plan out. This was never solved. Wow. So what are your thoughts on this unsolved case? You took the lead on the research, so I want to hear what what your thoughts are. I believe with 100% certainty that Private George Scholl was the killer of Anna Cardiel. Tell me your evidence to support that. The letter that was sent to the police on the ripped wrapping paper that describes how four of them went out, got drunk. One of them tried to get with Anna. She resisted. There was a struggle and they murdered her. That, Mm -hmm. to me, is supported by some of the witnesses' evidence, seeing her get into a car with two men and a woman. Do you agree? I totally agree. But what I didn't put together until literally this moment is that that note written by the heavy-handed man and the light-handed woman is the same time frame, almost exact, as George's alibi letter to his parents. The coincidence that George knew the exact amount of time, the window of opportunity that Anna died, he just wrote a diary out to his parents about what he was doing during that time and mailed it to them Mm -hmm. is really, really too much of a coincidence for me. And it doesn't coincide with what his friend Charles Garton said happened. Right. And it doesn't 
make sense if he just left his parents' house in Pleasantville, why he would be writing this letter. Like, it makes no sense why that letter was even written, unless he was writing it as an alibi letter. Exactly. Now, my next thing is, Jen, Mm -hmm. why do you think George would have killed her? What was the motive? We know that he wrote Anna letters that connected the two of them intimately. He would tell the police that he wasn't intimate with Anna. He would say that, but the letters say otherwise. In three of those letters, he is urging Anna not to tell her friends and family about the baby. Now, why would he care if the baby wasn't his? Why would he be so like hush-hush about it? Also, the only other evidence that Anna was pregnant is the baby itself at the crime scene. That's right. So the only indication that anyone other than Anna knew that she was pregnant would have been the letters and just George. Interesting. So why would why do you think he wasn't charged? I mean, obviously he I mean, dude, guys, this is not it's obvious that he did it. We solved a murder, but this isn't like murder. She wrote like this was not hard work. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he obviously did this. Why wasn't he charged? I mean, why do you think he wasn't charged? I have my theories. First of all, it really bothers me that the chief of police said that he was a good boy, that he had excellent character. Mm -hmm. I think that in itself was an indicator that he was determining who was good and who was bad. Mm. And apparently, in their minds, in McAllister and Naylor's mind, was, you know, George was a good boy of good character, of a good family. He made a bad choice hanging around with this girl who wasn't of good character. She was pregnant. She was seen with many men. Mm -hmm. She ended up dying. The question is, was this life, Anna's life, worth punishing George in a serious way? And McAllister And Naylor decided, no, Anna was not worth that. This was a good boy who made a bad mistake with a girl. There's another thing that was happening that I want to give context to, and it kind of is along the same line, the same conversation. And that's that the newspapers at the time, when writing about Anna's murder, called it, quote, another American tragedy. Do you remember seeing that? You know what? I did see it on many newspapers in October of 1934. They started with like the byline being another American tragedy. Yes. I didn't know what that meant. Neither did I. It was a cultural reference that you and I had both missed until I did a little Mm -hmm. research on what are they talking about? What is an American tragedy? An American tragedy was a novel that was published in 1925 by Theodore Dreiser, and it was a sensation. And it was based on the real life murder of a young woman by her lover in 1906. Mm. In the novel, the protagonist, Clyde, impregnates a young woman named Roberta, and he plans to murder her because he's afraid that she's going to reveal their relationship to the world. She wants to get married. He doesn't. He wants to move on with someone else. So he plans on murdering her and he takes her to a lake and they go out on a boat and he's going to kill her, but he has a change of conscience and he can't do it. 
But guess what? Huh. There's a terrible, terrible event happens where he accidentally hits her on the head with a camera in this novel. He accidentally hits her. She falls into the water. She drowns. And then there's a trial. Clyde is found guilty. He's sentenced to murder and he is executed. Why is this a tragedy? This is a tragedy that both young people died as a result of their life choices. What a tragedy. And it's also a moral tale about the way young people were living in the 1920s, in the Roaring Twenties, in that time of like sexual freedom, drinking, carousing, right? Tell me more. Okay. July 1934. This is the same year that Anna's found murdered in October. In July of 1934, there is a real life murder of a young woman named Frida McKechnie in Pennsylvania, and it made the papers all over the country. And it was deemed, quote, an American tragedy. Of course, a reference to Dreiser's novel that came out in the 20s. Frida was pregnant and her lover, Robert Edwards, was charged, tried and sentenced to death. His sentencing came out in early October 1934, just days before Anna's murder. Everybody would have known Mm. about this case. Everybody would have understood an American tragedy. And by calling Anna's crime another American tragedy, it's like, here we go again. Two young people's lives will be destroyed because of their choices. When will it stop? The girl is already gone, but must the young man's life end too? Like that's like all of this background, all of these feelings that would have been drudged up by this collective understanding of what that meant. I agree with everything you just said. I feel for Anna and I want to give her a voice because it's bull. It's bull that her crime was unsolved and that they didn't bring any justice to her. I do. I feel like she is not at rest because of this. You know what's bullshit is that she's laying in a grave and they're looking over her being like, well, what did you do to get there? Right. Is this even worth our time? That's what really bothers me is that they deemed her life was not worth solving her death. Well, it wasn't worth destroying George's life. Yeah, it's painful. I feel for Anna because I really do feel like she was leading us on Main Street. And when I stopped and wrote down that address, 585 Main Street, Anna lived on Mm -hmm. 516. We were on her block. You were driving and I stopped and wrote that down. We we probably passed where she used to live. We Her passed house. the places where she worked, where she was last sighted. It just blows my mind that we were there. We were so close. I know she was leading us. I noted the restaurant. Yes. In the yes. car, we were talking about the different ethnic restaurants. We were in her stomping grounds and like she was excited to have us there and to lead us. And really quickly, we were picking up on an ethnic neighborhood, which she lived in, an Italian neighborhood. There was a little Italy. Did I tell you that already? In Pleasantville, no. there was like this little Italy section of Pleasantville. Yeah. Yeah. Here, right? I mean, that's a direct reference to her and her heritage. Also, the fact that workers from Atlantic City live there. I feel like both her family and George's family were, you know, workers connected to Atlantic City. Don't you? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. The haves and the have nots. Oh. I noticed that you skipped over it, but I really do think it's relevant to bring up the fact that George's family was said right. to be prominent in the paper. However, if you look into the family a little bit closer, you would see that not only were they prominent socially, but they did have significantly more money than the Cardell family, the Cardell family. 
And I'll tell you how I know this, because during the 1920s, there was a permit granted to add $75,000 of improvements to the existing property that was quite extensive that George's family owned. Not only were they going to make improvements to the existing bungalow, but they were also building a garage. $75,000 in today's money. It was like over $4,000. Okay, in today's money. Where Anna's family was living 12 of them to one little place. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What about the fact that we saw in the cemetery our sister's name? It left me with the impression that our voiceless was a sister. Right. And not only that, but I feel like her family, specifically her brothers, are still upset about this. Especially Joseph spending time in jail. I hope we give Anna some measure of peace. Anna, we love you. Thank you for talking to us. And we hope we gave you the voice you were looking for. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. Let's end on a positive note. (laughs) Please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Mystics Podcasts. Listen in wherever you're hearing your favorite pod. But if you happen to be listening on Apple, please subscribe and leave us a positive review so other people can find us. You guys have a good week. We'll talk to you in two weeks. (laughs) Unless you're on our Patreon, then we'll see you at Detours next Thursday. Thank you. Good night. Bye.